Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Bruce Robertson and Milad Musavian, if I hope I said it right. Yeah, that's great. So I forget how I learned about you guys, but I, I learned about this report that you did on carbon capture and sequestration, which is something that I've had a bit of an evolution with myself because when I first heard of the concept, I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is, this is what we need. And then the more I learned about it, I was like, maybe it's not quite, it's one of these things that keeps being on the horizon. And then you guys, you know, forever. And you study a lot. So if it's okay with you, I'll read your bios very briefly and then start the report off and, and uh, let you guys take it from there if that's okay. Sounds good. Uh, and you guys are in from New South Wales, if I, if I remember right. I'm based in Melbourne, actually, Victoria. Ah, a place I've been. And Bruce, you're in New South Wales? Yeah, I'm on the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales. And let's, okay, so it says, so you're with the Institute for Energy Economics on Financial Analysis. So they examine issues related to energy markets, trends, and policies. The mission is to accelerate the transition to a diverse, sustainable, and profitable energy economy. Bruce is a energy finance analyst for gas, liquid, natural gas. You've been an investment analyst, a fund manager, and professional investor for over 36 years, having worked with perpetual trustees, UBS, Nippon Life Insurance, and BT. Milad, energy analyst, uh, consultant and researcher in the area of energy transition and climate finance economics, master's in economics from the University of Melbourne and in, and in energy systems. So the report that you guys did starts off how carbon capture and storage is a 50-year-old technology with variable results in capturing and storing carbon dioxide. Uh, project developers have always in, reused carbon, uh, captured carbon for enhanced oil recovery, which doesn't really feel like it's that much of a gain, but has been rejigged as a climate solution in recent years with diverse applications being proposed to decarbonize fossil fuel plants and hard to abate sectors. And the question that you guys came up with is, this push has given the platform polarizing views in carbon capture and utilization and storage and carbon capture and storage. Is it a greenwash to extend the life of a fossil fuel, of fossil fuel assets, or a panacea to avert catastrophic climate change consequences? And I'm very much interested to know. And I mean, I read the report, and it looks like it's a bit overpromised. It's not quite. To, well, can you guys say better than I can? How does it? How does it look to you? Well, I think, look, we, we examined 13 projects, um, which were flagship projects in each of the core areas that carbon capture and storage operates in. That's the, um, the gas processing sector, where the vast majority of projects are actually in gas processing. And then we also looked at the ones that were put on power stations and the ones that were put on industry. And so that's why, that's how we picked and it, it accounted for over 55% of the emission of the carbon dioxide stored. And really that's the key point is it was quite a broad ranging study and, and we covered the successful projects and the unsuccessful ones. And what we found in the 13 projects we looked at was that generally speaking, the technology underperforms. And this is an old technology. It's been around since the 1970s. And generally speaking, the plants do not perform to the levels that the companies themselves specified when they first proposed the projects. And we've had some problems with that, that, that little bit there, Josh, because we've had some pushback from, um, Boundary Dam, for example, SAS Power. They say that their project's performing better than, than we say it is, but 
all they've done is lowered the targets. And um, the same was true with Gorgon here in Western Australia. After the plant operated for a number of years, they lower the targets. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, this is, this is not really consistent with, with the way we looked at it. We just looked at what they said at the beginning of the project and has it been successful? And so the answer is no. They haven't been successful. Um, seven of them underperformed their capture rates. Um, three actually did what they said they were going to do. Two were stopped early because they weren't failing and one actually properly failed where the carbon dioxide was moving within the reservoir in ways that they hadn't foreseen and, and it was a real problem. Um, so they stopped that one early. I think the other thing we found was that these are very expensive projects. Mm-hmm. All of them are very, very expensive projects. And I think that that's one of the key points is they're demanding a lot of government support. And so is this value for money for the taxpayer? And the clear conclusion is that it's not. Um, so that's really the, the, the key takeouts from what I saw. And, and look earlier before you said, Josh, about, um, uh, people looking at this with hope. Um, you know, it's not only people, the International Energy Agency thinks that we've got to have more carbon capture and storage to get there. The only caveat in this report is we do see a role for carbon capture and storage in very hard to abate industries such as cement. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Um, at the moment, there's pretty much no alternatives. Um, to carbon capture and storage to try and ameliorate the effects of cement production. Mm-hmm. And it's a very large greenhouse gas emitter globally, cement. Mm-hmm. So um, they were the key takeouts uh, from our point of view. But um, I don't know, maybe maybe I missed a couple, Milan. Well, can I ask for a clarification question? When you say underperform, that could mean in a physics sense or it could be economic uh, in, were they underperforming in in what sense were they underperforming? I can jump in. Uh, actually, uh, I think physically, I mean, technically, yes. So, for example, you promise to capture like 90% of the carbon dioxide that you're producing, for example, at a natural gas processing plant. This is your target, but what we found is, for example, like they're underperforming by 50% or from, for different projects, it was different, but they are under underperforming by a wide margin in actually in, in like most of the projects, I would say. And the question that you raise about whether it's a potential, I mean, whether it's a greenwash or a uh, climate solution, I think the answer is, uh, I mean, very complex. Actually, we, the, the motivation behind doing this report is answering this question, shed light to answer this question. And the, the short answer is the way it's been used so far couldn't be labeled as a climate-friendly solution at all. If you look at look back into history, mm-hmm. so it this technology was used to uh, enhance uh, to to enhance the recovery rate of oil from a depleted oil on oil wells so in a very simple terms i don't want to dig into the the technicalities we know that the problem is coming from fossil fuels 
Okay, it, and so we we have to address this uh, cause. Okay, mm -hmm. we have to reduce the fossil fuel extraction. So we invent a, a technology which is called uh, carbon capture, which is now these days called carbon capture, capturing the carbon from one side and injecting to the other side into the well to produce more oil. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense, and in in a very simple terms. And the important thing is. It initiated, this technology initiated like 50 years ago. And I wouldn't believe that if someone says it was a climate friendly motivation behind this technology 50 years ago, mm -hmm. when no one, you know, cared about the climate or like the climate change things. It was a necessary, it is very important here to note that it was a necessary, essential part of producing natural gas. You have to capture, you have to actually separate the carbon dioxide in the extracted gas from any field around the world. So any field around gas field around the world, when you're producing gas, there is a proportion of CO2 in it. Mm -hmm. Depends on the, you know, uh, chemical like uh, proportions of different fields, but there is a CO2 in it. You have to get rid of that to produce a marketable gas. Mm -hmm. So you had to like to producing it. You had to like get rid of that carbon, and after a while, you found a good customer for that, like for that waste sort of waste, which is oil companies. So you can sell that carbon that you had to remove it anyway, and making some money. So this is how initiated this technology initiated. But as I said, the short answer is it's the way it's been used is not climate friendly. But there might be, as Bruce just mentioned, there might be some probable uh, potential pathways to follow to use this, this technology in some very niche applications like cement and steel. It's just no one has found something yet that's, I mean, because I guess when I first heard about it 10 years ago or so, I felt like someone will figure out a way, maybe use some solar panels to make some carbon rock in the Sahara Desert and We'll just make big rocks out of carbon there. And, but that's not, I mean, what you're talking about is something that they, they, they were getting this carbon anyway, and they just used to get, to get more fossil fuels out. So it's, it's going to be promoting extra extraction of carbon, making its way into the biosphere somehow. Yeah. Look, I suppose really when you look at that, Joshua, um, it's actually a little bit worse than that because these projects, what, what carbon capture and storage essentially does is it enables the opening up of gas wells that would otherwise have not been opened up because of the high CO2 content. Now, the best example of that is Shoot Creek, which is the largest and longest-running carbon capture and storage on the globe. It's ExxonMobil Shoot Creek in Wyoming. Now, that that project is on an incredibly high CO2-rich gas field. And what it means after carbon and capture and storage is the net result of all that they've done is that they've reduced that CO2 to a very high carbon dioxide field. Now, that field wouldn't have been developed without carbon capture and storage, without being able to sell the carbon uh, dioxide to other oil and gas producers 
it simply wouldn't have been developed and all those emissions that are very high from Shoot Creek wouldn't have occurred. So it's an enabling technology that enables the production of gas from very high carbon dioxide field, which then enables more oil and gas to be produced. So it is an emissions enabling technology, not an emissions saving technology. So how did this, because I think of also the IPCC would put it in, in the projections of we'll maybe have some carbon capture that'll bring carbon out of the atmosphere. Were they just, was that pure wishful thinking? Were they sold the bill of goods by Exxon that something could do something that it wasn't? It's a little bit of both. I think we've got to be a bit careful here. Uh-huh. It's a little bit of both. Um, you know, if we're talking direct air capture, I really don't think that's ever going to be a thing at scale because it's very, very expensive. You know, it, it, we've got to get to the cost of this technology. The cost is enormous. And I think when you look at these, when you look at this report in very simplistic terms, mm-hmm. most of the projects are in the billions of dollars not in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, they cost billions. And we've got to ask the question, are those billions better off being spent here or in another climate mitigation um, uh, way? They're also extremely energy intensive. And this is the negative feedback loop in the whole process. So it's a lot of capital to build these plants. There's a lot of embedded carbon in those plants, you know, with a lot of steel. And then you have this thing of they 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 are actually as it stands today, they're enabling more carbon dioxide production. But um and they're energy intensive. So the quest project in Canada, for example, 21% of the emission savings were used up in the energy that was actually used to do make those savings. So direct air capture is very, very energy intensive. And I don't think it's going to be a climate solution. If we're talking about using carbon capture and storage to try and store emissions from industries we can't otherwise abate, like steel and cement, we do see a role. But at the moment, that's not where the industry's at. The industry is all about gas processing. You know, that's where the majority of projects are. And if you look at gas processing, it's only addressing the scope one and two emissions, which are the emissions when you produce the gas. And most of the emissions occur when you burn the gas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's only 15% of the emissions occur at the beginning of the process. 85% occur when you actually burn the gas. And they're only trying to address the 15 and not doing that successfully. I'm not hearing a silver lining here at all. I mean, uh, the cement, there's that. That's big. But in terms of, re- of, of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, getting greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, it sounds like this is not happening. I mean, recently I read like there's this thing in Iceland, but that doesn't sound like that would scale. And look, look, the, we 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 our report really looks at the state of the industry today, uh-huh. right? We're not trying to forecast forward about what will happen too much, but at, as it stands today, that Iceland facility is tiny. It is absolutely like it's a rounding error in the whole, uh-huh. in the whole industry. 
Um, and, you know, we don't see it being scaled up because of cost. So there's, it feels like there's a fair amount of news coverage of things like this. And, and it sounds like people haven't done the research and it's, they're hoping, I mean, it, I had, I had on the, a guest on the podcast a while ago who was a, a chief engineer at a, an electric plane company. And he was talking about how electric planes, if you want to move people, maybe 100, 200 miles or not people, it can work. But like he didn't see any chance of getting across oceans, like large numbers of num- large numbers of people. And it was just there's a lot of wishful thinking out there. But people aren't when, when you really look at the details, it's very unlikely. It's, a, you know, aviation is a pretty mature field. They're not going to make more aerodynamic planes and and um and it feels like that's what's the case here, that there's a lot of wishful thinking, but when you look at the numbers, it's not very likely to, to achieve much. Yeah, I think uh, historically, capture, as Bruce said, actually, I personally think that we cannot like forecast the future or what happens, but there is another problem with these type of technologies like direct air caption. You know, they're not addressing the cost. You know, one argument is the financial argument, like it's so expensive, or the other one is technicalities, whether it, it, it could work or not. But the other thing is, do we like green lighting some emission intensive activities by like by encouraging direct air capture? So it's like let me let me put it in a context. So there is a cause, and I mean, the very simple rules of causality, there is a cause and there is an effect. So we've got some problems. What is the problem is we are hitting by like some extreme events. It's climate, the climate is changing. This is the problem that we we have at hand. What causes this problem is fossil fuels and the greenhouse gases after burning fossil fuels, mostly, Mm -hmm. to be fair. So I want to solve this problem. What should I do? So I, I should address the cause. If I'm, I, you know, this, this type of things is, I, I'm just looking at it from an like ideological perspective. So I'm actually moralized sensing. So I would say, for example, do whatever you want or just continue making this mess. And I would erase the effect for you by direct air capture. I would erase some, some greenhouse gas emission that you, you, you're going to produce. And this is sort of a moralized sensing. And we've got a lot of these things in the like energy transition narrative. For example, the idea of offsets. Mm-hmm. So you can do whatever you want and then offsetting what you did. I, I don't want to rule out the offsets. We need offsets in some, some senses. Uh, I know that. I admire that. But, you know, the, the essence of these sort of solutions not addressing the cause is sort of problematic. And the very basic I mean, the main one of them is the very basic term of net zero. I think it's a very dangerous concept. What is it? What is the net zero that we have to reach uh, until 2050? So it means that your net emissions should be zero at uh, until 2050. And I wanna like uh, imagine a hypothetical situation. Suppose that you've got a switch that you can switch off all of the emissions at once. You don't use this switch, so you let it to be on until 2049 and produce as much as emissions that you can. 
And exactly at the first day of 2050, you just switch it up. And then you're going to be net zero. So does it make sense? Or could we, could we save the climate by this way? Net zero. But we are net zero at 2050 in this way. So, but it's not, it's not the case. So it, that, that's why I, I think it's, it's a dangerous concept that we should be aware of. So these type of technologies like director capture or even carbon capture storage in some cases, like, for example, using a carbon capture storage to develop a new gas field. I, it doesn't make sense to me. So I'm here. If what I'm hearing is that uh, the the idea of it psychologically is enabling people to not address, not causing it, not not admitting the things in the first place, and for that matter, even greenhouse gases is one form of pollution coming from fossil fuels. Even if we just clean that up, but all the plastic and other forms of pollution coming out of it, it wouldn't solve that at all. And there's a view that I have on 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 um, uh, carbon offsets that, to me, it feels like if I, if if I offset carbon that I'm bringing in from outside the biosphere, if that's not too loose a, a way to put it, and I plant trees instead, one of them that's just moving it around within the biosphere, planting trees, and so maybe I'll lock it up for hundred years or forever long before forest lasts, but not on the scale of 10 million years, how long it took the oil to get there. If we can't offset it by putting it back outside the biosphere, then it's not really an offset. And what I'm hearing is that we can't get greenhouse gases back outside the biosphere. Yeah, look, the offsets are are tremendously problematic. I mean, globally, where they've been studied, they've, um, you know, they haven't proved to have a lot of... um, Credibility, I think, would be the best word. You know, in Australia, for example, you know, you can plant a forest with all the best intentions, with the best science, the best everything else. And, you know, if we had bushfires like we did just three years ago, it's going to burn to the ground. It's up in smoke, yeah. It's all up in smoke. And, you know, you know, I actually farm. Like, that's what I do as well as do, do energy analysis, you know. And um, one of the things they talk about is capturing carbon in the soil now that's something i've been doing for 20 years but i can tell you it's not a straight line you know like you can have your good years where you build soil and you build soil health and then you get a massive drought or a fire comes through and you know um we haven't had fires fortunately but we've had plenty of floods that do damage as well some strip some soil off or whatever Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's not a straight line. Um, anything in the natural system is not a straight line, and you have these accountants there with their spreadsheets, um, you know, doing carbon accounting, pretending that all this stuff is a straight line, and it's not. And so actually, while I'm all in favour of farming more responsibly, planting trees, doing biosequestration, all that sort of stuff, I think actually measuring it is is incredibly problematic mm-hmm. because you're dealing with a natural system that ebbs and flows. It's not a straight line. It's not it's not something you can put on a spreadsheet and give a financial answer to. And that's that's one of the big issues I have with carbon offsets. Yeah, I I'm not a big fan of them. I feel like it's a way of feeling good about bringing pollution from outside the biosphere into it and then kind of shuffling it around once it's in here, but not, not doing away with it. I'm curious when you guys 
decided to do the research and write this report, what was motivating you? Was it, did you know more or less what the results were before you started? Or did you, uh, was it blind and trying to figure out going from scratch? Did you have goals in mind? Or was it just broad research? Well, if, if you have a look, it, it, it harks back to your earlier point, you know, carbon capture and storage is one of the one of the key technologies being promoted by the International Energy Agency. And it brings up that lovely conflict because you have the oil and gas industry pointing to the International Energy Agency on the one hand for carbon capture and storage and on the other hand promoting new oil and gas projects that the International Energy Agency says we can't have if we're going to get to 2050, um, net zero by 2050. So there's this beautiful irony there. But anyway... Um, getting back to the, the key point, we looked at this industry because of the bodies like the international agencies saying that we need carbon capture and storage for this to, to, to get to net zero. So we wanted to have a look. Does it actually work? Because we knew of a number of cases where it hadn't worked, but we wanted to look, take a global look uh-huh. and look globally and see, does it actually work? Can it actually address emissions? And what we found is that as it stands today, it's mainly used in gas processing, which produces emissions, mm-hmm. and it's mainly used um, for enhanced oil recovery, which produce more emissions. So what we found is the technology is problematic. It doesn't actually work all the time because it's not you can't replicate it very easily you can take a successful project from one area put it somewhere else and it won't work and that's one of the key things that we found is that it's not that easy it's a difficult problematic technology so if we're relying on a difficult problematic technology to get us to net zero i would humbly suggest it's not a great thing have you heard back from the international energy association Agency? No, no, we haven't. We've had very, look, I've been involved in a lot of research in the energy space over the years, and we've never had an international reaction to a report like we had to this one. You know, this has had articles in the South China Morning Post, the Straits Times, which are the papers of record for Hong Kong and Singapore. It's had articles in the UK Guardian and the New Scientist. You know, we've done news grabs all around the world, radio shows all around the world, podcasts. It, it, it has been quite phenomenal, mm-hmm. really has been quite phenomenal, the, the reaction to this. And um, and it's ongoing. You know, it's ongoing. I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. And the reason is, is that um, globally, Billions of dollars are being poured in by governments into this technology. And we have questioned that. We've questioned the, the need for that. You know, if you look at a life cycle of a technology, generally speaking, they start off, they have to get government subsidies. You know, they, they come out of universities, which generally speaking, globally are government subsidized. Mm-hmm. They, they they then go to a small plant that's subscale and that's subsidised. Then they go to a commercial sized plant, which is normally the early ones are also government subsidised. It's very rare, with the exception of carbon capture and storage, which is an exception to the rule, where it is 
you know, it has done all that back in the 70s and 80s, got to scale. Mm -hmm. And yet still we're seeing massive government subsidies poured into this industry globally. And that's really the key point is, is that, you know, this industry should be standing on its own two feet by now and it's not because it doesn't really work all the time. Well, how did it feel when you were finding this out? Because it sounded like it could have worked. Like you, you might have been hoping to be pleasantly surprised that there might have been some projects that were more successful or had some hope on the horizon. And it's, was it dis- uncomfortable to find, a, to find out the results that you found? Uh, I just want to refer him back to a question that the, what was the motivation behind doing this research? So I actually, I was looking into this industry for a while and, you know, I was mesmerized by the different application of this technology. But if you look into it, like in, like in the widely cited documents, it is used as an umbrella term. So carbon capture and storage, mm-hmm. but I found we need to demystify and, uh, you know, demystify this, like, uh, this ambiguity. For example, in terms of the applications, it's really important in what application you are thinking about. And if you look back into history, actually, we started by historical perspective. As we said, we, like, looked into three different categories. So one is the gas processing, which by far was the most I mean, uh, I would say more than 70% of the projects are still in this, in this sector. The other one is the power sector. And the third one is the industry. We talked about the natural gas processing sector, but regarding the power sector, I, I know that, for example, in the U.S., there is a lot of push to like subsidizing CCS projects, the power sector. So the idea is like retrofitting a very like old, for example, coal power plants with the carbon capture and to let to let it be there for, for example, for a more couple of years or maybe decades. But on, on the ground, it didn't work. So we had some very big failures in the power sector. And uh, there was another research by, by researchers in one of the Canadian universities that showed that 90% of the proposed project, 90% of the proposed proposed project in the power sector failed before they start mm-hmm. in mainly in the US. So and the third one is the industry. So when when we look back to these projects, just to be fair, we found a couple of successful ones as just Bruce mentioned. But again, when you look into it, the successful ones, for example, in Norway, was in the natural gas processing sector. So application matters. Mm-hmm. Even those successful ones was serving the fossil fuel like extraction. And even if you can capture all of, suppose again, a hypothetical situation, suppose that this technology could capture all 100% of the emissions from a natural gas processing sector. Suppose that. Okay. So we, we capture all of that and we produce gas. And for example, in Australia, we export it to a Southeast Asian country. They want to burn that gas for different for different uses. Mm-hmm. When you burn the gas, it releases a lot of CO2. And to put it into context, the proportion of the emissions at the end of this value chain is 85% of total emissions. So even if you could 
capture all of the CO2 at the source of production, you could only capture 15% of that approximately. And yeah, so for example, we got some feedbacks about successful projects. Yeah, I, I just to be fair, there are some successful projects, there are a few, few ones of them, but as I said, the application matters. And the only application that we are left with is the industry. We, we can think of some application in the industry as we discussed, but this is not actually what we see in reality these days on the ground. And that is the problem. That's the other motivation. We want to alarm the investors that if there is a optimistic or like promising pathway to follow, there are some niche applications, but this is what's not happening and what's not we see in the reality. With the, so you mentioned a lot of the um, that you're getting a lot of attention on this one. What you mentioned the places where you're getting attention from. What what are they reporting? Are they saying? I mean, what you just said. It's like this is not nearly what we expected or hoped for. Or are they questioning you? Look, I I, I think the reason we're getting so much attention is because you know. Luckily for us, when we released it, you know, we'd been working on this report for about eight months, I think it was, all up my lad, wasn't it? I mean, it was a long time anyway, yep. been working on the report and um, on and off, you know, in between doing other reports. But, um, you know, I think it was just the timing. And we released this report and, 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 you know, in the US, you've had the IRA Act, you've had the International Energy Agency trying to prod people into doing, doing more in carbon capture and storage. You've had developments in Southeast Asia, like in Japan, for example, where they're talking about doing carbon capture and storage. And, you know, the, the fundamental point is that it's a very hard thing to do in some of these areas. You know, like we're, we're, we come from countries where you have large in, indigenous gas industries. Japan doesn't. Right. So if it captures carbon dioxide, it's going to have to liquefy it, put it in a ship, send it down to Indonesia or Australia to find suitable storages. And that is, it gets back to one of the key points that we found out when we did this, this whole study. It's a hugely energy intensive process. And that in itself generates emissions. So. Yeah, look, it really, I think it got so much into attention, this report, because governments are looking at spending a lot of money and a lot of time, a lot of regulatory effort, a lot of money um, on this industry. And, and I think that's why it's got such attention, because it's a hideously expensive industry. Um, to produce one of these plants, it's hideously expensive, mm. and I, I think that 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 really is the, the nub of it. It's demanding a lot of government time, effort, and money. And I think the other reason that's it, about the timing is we've got UK and US that are hugely promoting this uh, this technology at like uh, right now as we're talking with a lot of policies and grants and stuff. And for example, in UK, we got a like a response from a, a very respectful uh, like researcher that there are you know the the response was it's not it, it could be a successful technology and we have some experiences in Norway 
And uh, I personally don't want to be pessimistic. I know there are a lot of good people with good wills to do something about climate change. They are looking for different like solutions. And they may think of carbon capture as a solution. But, you know, the answer to that response is that I truly believe there are some successful projects in Norway. Mm -hmm. But first of all, there are very few compared to the failed projects. And second of all, as I said, there were mostly in the natural gas processing sector, while we need in the other applications. And I, I really know that there are, you no, know, I got a lot of feedbacks from people around the world because there are some sort of neutral about this technology. They want to know more about them, that we want to do something about that. We, we For example, we're developing this technology or I'm a, I'm a like university researcher, blah, blah, blah. And I noticed that goodwill is there, but mm -hmm. it needs to be directed. And I know <laughs> you know how to how to lead people, Josh. Uh -huh. So yeah, because you're teaching leadership, it needs to be directed. You know this huge amount of investment or will. I don't care about maybe some, maybe some, there are some bad wheels or I don't know. But I want to be optimistic about that. And um, regarding these industrial applications. There is a, another niche application that I want to mention it maybe later in, in this, in, in this interview, which is neglected, which is carbon capture and usage. Uh -huh. But no one cares about it. When they say they use it umbrella time carbon carbon storage, they, they mainly use the other application that we discussed. But there are some like startups around the world doing their best to recycle the carbon. And just putting the capture carbon into like, for example, carbonates or other stuff that we use. Mm -hmm. So recycle it rather than capturing and store it under the ground with a lot of problems or promoting like oil production. And but they are sort of neglected in this in this space, I think. Would it be safe if I'm talking to someone and they say, well, we might capture carbon and put it underground to say, look, that's that's wishful thinking. It's not going to happen. There's no sign of it really working. And, uh, and psychologically, it just promotes more, more emissions. Has that oversimplified things? Yeah, I think um, getting back to, to Malad's point, it probably does oversimplify things a little bit. Um, in the main today, that's right. And, and what you're seeing, like in the US, for example, with the IRA Act, is that it will incentivize the wrong sorts of carbon capture and storage in our view. Uh, you know, the the ones that we should be incentivizing are the carbon capture and usage, which is making carbons or building materials or whatever out of the carbon, actually recycling it. Um, we should be promoting that. We should be promoting it for industry, but the IRA Act will stimulate more power plants, you know, retrofitting to coal-fired power and gas-fired power plants that really isn't a solution. It's hideously expensive. It's much cheaper just to go and spend that money, government money, on subsidising um, a better grid, for example, and more renewable power in, in the grid. We we could just do that, you know. Like we, there are other ways we can spend the money, the limited amount of money we have. So, is it oversimplifying? Yeah, it is because there, there there is some specific usages which we can look at subsidising carbon capture and storage, but just not the way it is being done now. Mm -hmm. And that's the key point. The way we're actually doing it in the US, for example, 
is totally the wrong way around. Like it, it, all the money will flow into the gas processing sector and into power stations. It won't flow into industry and carbon capture and usage, you know, actual mm-hmm. producing products with the carbon. So I think, I think that that's really the key point is, you know, carbon capture and storage is nice in theory, but in practice, the way it's being done mm-hmm. is, is no, no climate solution. All right. So now, let me see if I got that right. The, because now I want to, I want to be able to say it the way you just said it. It's it's nice in theory. The way that we, at least in the U.S., are implementing it, it's funneling money into um, energy, the energy industry, but in a way that's not lowering emissions, nor is it taking CO two out of or greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Yes, there could be things that it could be used for, but we're not doing that. And those things that's wrong. But even if those things work as well as possible, it's still relatively niche things they're not really um it's not really that effective that big it's not a climate solution if that's what you're asking no um it gets back to that original point that Milad said you know what is the problem the problem is we're burning too many fossil fuels and so why don't we look at reducing that and that's what we've got to do and and there are myriad of ways both as as you do the demand reduction, yeah, and also actually listening to the climate scientists that say we can't have new oil and gas fields, right? We can't have new ones. And globally, it's not just in the US. Globally, we are opening up so many at the moment. Oh, yeah, it is. We are actually heading in the opposite direction in the US. You know, you're pedaling very hard to supply more gas into Europe. If we look, um, if we look in Australia, we're looking at opening up vast new gas fields off the north of Australia and the northwest of Australia. Um, if you look at Qatar, they're looking at a 64% increase in production by 2027. These are, and Qatar's the biggest producer of LNG on the globe. You know, these are massive new oil and gas projects that are going ahead globally. And this is the problem, you know. If you've got a problem, first of all, stop digging the hole deeper. At the moment, we're digging the hole deeper. And carbon capture and storage, as it's currently configured, Mm -hmm. is facilitating that digging of the hole deeper. And I would add, like, regarding the... I mean, you, you got it right, Josh. You summarized it very well. The way it's been used hasn't been a climate solution. And in those applications that we are like uh, thinking about and we're like thinking that there might be some, some potential application like cement and steel, we cannot say it's a niche application. We, we got to be careful about this niche. So steel and cement accounts for 14% of the global emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that we got to be careful about them. We cannot solve these emission problems only with carbon capture because the climate clock is ticking. So we need time to develop these technologies and we don't have enough time. And also there are a lot of parallel solutions to be followed as well. So they're not the only like the only solution. There's, they could be studied as partial solutions to address a like a proportion of proportion of that that fourteen percent. For example, in the in, in the steel industry, 
we got a very good alternative like green hydrogen. It is green. It's totally green because it's produced from, I mean, the, the energy source is, is uh, the energy source from the renewable energies. And it's, it's a promising way to, to follow. And in cement, there are some researchers that try to reinvent the way we produce cement. So in this sense, carbon capture could have a role, but it's a, it's a partial role. Mm-hmm. And if, if you capture the carbon from a cement industry, you got to be careful how to want to use it how to want to store it. So this is the other side of the problem that we, we actually couldn't find time to talk about that. So if, if you may heard of this storing it under the ground, but it's a very tricky thing to, to deal with. It's not that, that easy. To store gas under the ground? Yeah, store, store the carbon, store the carbon. So capturing the carbon and storing it under the ground without using, for example, for oil production. The EOR was one application. The other, the other application is just just capturing the carbon and store it permanently under the ground. But this permanently thing is tricky. Yeah. So how could you guarantee that it's going to be there for thousands of years? You're not talking about one year, two years, 10 years, or even 100 years. Who, who would monitor that? Who would compensate if there is a leakage, which had some, we had some uh, bad experiences in the history? So these are the, the other things that we, we have to be careful when we talking about promoting like carbon capture in cement and steel, because there are some other solutions and also storing the way that you would treat the final destination of that carbon capture, captured carbon is, is a serious question itself. So this is how we can frame it in the cement and steel industry, I would think. Well, I appreciate that clarification. And I really value this research because it's, I mean, you guys have been very clear about the results. And it sounds like there wasn't a lot of research in this before. And you've clarified something that that the world could really use some clarification on that we, yes, we should do some things here, but there's lots of other areas where there can be solutions. And this is not one of them. Exactly. That's that's pretty much the conclusion um, of the report. I think you've summed it up rather beautifully, Josh. Thank you. Saves us trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce and Milad, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it, it clarified a lot. And otherwise, it's so we're so prone to want to like, oh, there might be something there. You know, we want to hope, and but we also have to look at the data. And thank you for for finding it and presenting it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Josh. I know we're running out of time, but I was expecting to ask me about the Spodic solution because the Spodic part of the interview, because I uh-huh. <laughs> I listened to one of a couple of your podcasts before the interview. To be honest, I, I hadn't listened to, but I might might listen to it uh-huh. regularly because I found it very insightful. I was thinking about the solution, so... Don't you want to ask me about that? Ah, well, because <laughs> I got it. I, I found a one. Well, the spot of method is is a whole process of walking through, and I'm, I'm guessing that you came up with something that you might want to do. Most people, when they, I, I suspect that you're going to come up with something that is slightly different than, um, uh, how do I put it? Step one is to evoke what the environment means to someone, and then to act on that meaning and purpose of that thing. What was it? What did you come up with? Because uh, now I have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was. It isn't a big, like a very big step. But as you said, 
it's better than nothing to begin with. Actually, came to my mind when, when we started the meeting. So I'm when I sit. I mean, the way I sit I mean, on my desk is like I had a window on my background, and there's a very, I mean a lot of sunlight when I just do the interviews and videos. Mm-hmm. So and. I, I just, you know, pull down the blinds and just turning on the light even <laughs> in the, during, during the day. Like, like exactly, this is what I'm doing right now. So the light is on right now while it's a lot of sunlight there. Uh-huh. So I was thinking maybe to readjust the desk or like uh, somehow just adjusting the, the screen uh, light to just turning off that light. I know it's not a big step, but it really triggered me to think about these things. And that's because of uh, listening to your podcast. I'm deeply honored because <laughs> you didn't have to. And it made, and if I'm reading you right, it had an effect on you. Um, I'd love to continue the conversation if you're up for it. Sure. Because the, the listeners don't know that we emailed back and forth of like, what are we going to cover? And I was like, sometimes you do the spotting method, sometimes not. And you guys have a lot of information I wanted to like learn and therefore not do the spotting method. And, but then you listened anyway. So, and it had an effect. So that, that's touching to me. And that, it's touching. Uh, I'm glad to hear, and I'd love to follow up on that. Thank you. I propose after we stop recording, scheduling a, another call, maybe unrecorded. Yeah. That, that would be a great idea. Thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. That was fantastic. Thank you, too. You really enjoyed. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.